This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Two weeks ago, we gave a message called the Gospel Delivery Part 1. And so it was somewhat of a risky thing to do because that sort of begged for a part two. And I had part two ready for last week, but we ended up giving something a little different last week. And so part two has just sort of been lingering, uh, waiting uh, for the perfect time. And it would appear, unless God intervenes in the upcoming seconds, uh, that that is precisely what we're going to give today, would be the gospel delivery part two. So as we go through this, I'll attempt to familiarize you with two weeks ago because this is a continuation of that message, but a very different message. So it's, it is two parts, two puzzle pieces that when put together really fill in a lot of gaps. But uh, let's, let's begin. The Gospel Delivery, a study in leading souls from death unto life, part two. Leonard Ravenhill. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't dig this up. This was an audio uh, message that he gave, and I forgot to ask Leslie. Leslie's great with quotes. She can remember everything verbatim. I remember things. I always say that I have a conceptual memory. I can never remember anything verbatim, but I can remember the concept. Someone could speak to me for an hour. I could share it back, what they said, but I couldn't give you one actual quote of what they said. And so here we have the same thing. So this technically isn't exactly the words that Leonard Ravenhill used, but this is the concept. If it takes two to four hours to bring a baby calf into this world, should we really expect to bring a man from death into life with a 30-second prayer? It's just a question that Leonard Ravenhill was bringing up. Basically, I guess he'd stayed awake one night and I don't, couldn't sleep and turned on uh, the television and saw uh, some thing about uh, a calf being born. And it was so fascinating to him. He watched it for about an hour, and he was so intrigued by just the process of birth and it took, you know, two to four hours. And so he was just struck with the realization that's exactly uh, the difference between what is supposed to be happening in the church and what oftentimes does happen. And that is that we don't tend as midwives, as if you will, as gospel tears, to the formation of new life in those that we are bringing into the kingdom of heaven. We, we oftentimes were led to Christ with a 30-second prayer. And so oftentimes we're looking to just get someone to pray a prayer. And if someone prays a prayer, then we feel like we can just sort of go check. And yet, you can think about your life. You prayed a prayer, but did you understand truly what you had in Christ? It's sort of like, have you ever gotten one of those contraptions? Maybe it's for Christmas, you open it up in some technological device, and the directions might as well be written in Russian, because you can't understand them at all. This, I, this device, we, Leslie and I, when we were first married, actually she had it before we were married, but then I inherited it, and so I was trying to figure it out. It was this keyboard. And I tell you what, I know that the words in the directions were written in English, but I'm, I'm thinking that Google Translate may have existed back then, and it was Japanese, and they stuck it into some Google Translate and out spat some English. It didn't make any sense. The directions did not functionally help me at all. 
And a lot of times in Christianity, we have the device, we have the keyboard, but we don't understand how to use it. Our job in bringing someone to the gospel isn't to just point, but it's to actually, in a sense, give them the instruction manual and get them started to show them the basics of what they have in Christ Jesus. Now, since most of us weren't introduced to the basics of what we have in Christ Jesus, it's sort of hard for us to give it to someone else. And as a result, very skimpy faith begets skimpy faith. And very shallow Christianity begets very shallow Christianity. And no one's to blame in this room, except for we would be to blame if we hear this message today and we keep going in the way we have been going. Let's begin to impart a meteor, deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ is. So that's what this message is about. Winning souls. So two weeks ago, we talked about uh, this exact scripture, he that wins souls is wise. And it's just a statement of fact. It's a proverb. But this isn't just like a Hindu proverb or a Chinese proverb. It's just, it's not on that level. The Chinese proverbs and the Hindu proverbs are from man's angle. It doesn't mean they're false. It just means they're from man's angle. Believe me, I'm not trying to put a plug in for Hinduism or any Chinese proverb in saying that. However, there's a difference between the Hebrew proverbs. Hebrew proverbs were given by God. And so actually it's proverbs from a heavenly perspective down. They're just fact. They are truth. And so what we see is there's an incontrovertible fact that says he that wins souls is wise. So in the proverbs there are two kinds. There is a fool and there's a wise. And the fool is of the flesh, it's the firstborn, but we must be born again. We must become a new creature in Christ Jesus, and we must become the second, the wise. And the wise that are truly born anew, quickened by the Spirit of grace, recognize this. He that wins souls is wise. When you've been transformed by Jesus Christ, you will reproduce. You're living. Just like a branch on a vine that is now alive, what will it produce? Fruit. And so he that is properly grafted in will produce fruit. Might as well just say that. He that wins souls, he that produces fruit, is wise. Do we really do the winning? Isn't that sort of just a fascinating question just to sort of lay out before us? So we are to win souls. And you could say, I could say, have you ever won a soul to Christ? And do we win a soul? Well, sort of. It's sort of like a midwife delivering a baby. The midwife really isn't the one that created the baby, but she superintends the process of the baby coming into this world. So in a sense, she delivered a baby. However, she didn't invent the baby, create the baby, make the baby come to life. And so that's sort of the same way we are. We are in the process of delivery, but we're not the ones that conceived the life. We're not the ones that made it breathe. That's God's business. However, we are a part of it, and we need to know our role in that. So one of the great pictures, I've used this at Ellerslie quite a few times, just a great picture of how our relationship with God works when we're working in conjunction with his strength. Because God, we know, is the one that truly wins his soul, and yet we are to be soul winners. So how does that work? You see, God is always the capital version. So he's the Christ, and we are little Christians. We are Christians. Okay, we're not Christ. We're like the small rendition. And the same is true with soul winning. God is the big SW, soul winner. Uh, S and then W. Make sure my uh, letters are correct. We are little small ones. In other words, we're not the ones that 
really do it, but we do. We're actually a part of this process. So an illustration is we had a huge snowstorm a few years ago. So I, was, I had the shovel, and Hudson was just a little tyke at the time, and he had his shovel that looked just like Daddy's, but it was like a little miniature shovel. And so I came out with my shovel, and it was one of those snowstorms where literally you have to like, cut pieces out and like, do it in layers. It was so deep and so heavy, and it was back-breaking. And so Hudson would come out, and I was making my little path, and Hudson would come up and stick his shovel into the snow and throw it up in the air. And it would land basically right in the spot that I was shoveling. It's like, hey, buddy, why don't you try and throw it off to the side? And he threw up, you know, some snow. I mean, he was, he's just a little guy. And do you know that it was my delight to have him out there with me? It really was. Now, was he really helping a lot? Well, not, not a lot. Uh, but it's my delight to have him with me. Now, a few, a few minutes into it, he went in to talk to Mama about his hard work. And, you know, came out maybe 15, 20 minutes later and threw some snow up in the air and it landed on my freshly uh, shoveled areas. And, but I delight to have him out there and it was wonderful that he could participate and that he wanted to participate with that. He went in a few times, came back out a few times. At the very end, he was with me and we're shoveling the very last bit. And then I said something like, as, as we finish, you know, the work is finished. And I said, Hudson, go in and tell Mama, because he was going to get uh, hot chocolates uh, with marshmallows when we were done. And so he's running in. He's, Mama, Mama, Daddy and I shoveled the whole driveway. Now, I could correct him on that. And I could say, hey, buddy, all you did was make a mess of it. And that would have been just as true. And yet, Daddy delights to share in that accomplishment with his son. So I don't correct that. As far as I'm concerned, Hudson and I went out and shoveled the driveway today. And that's the facts. Now, Jesus Christ has done it. He's after his reward. He will gain it. The Holy Spirit has been sent forth to claim it. The word will not return void. He will gain what he is after. And we participate. We throw some snow up in the air. It lands right on his hard work. I mean, if you were to ask, are we really helping this whole thing? Well, that's a debatable point. I know we are. I I know it's probably better than what Hudson was doing with the shovel. But don't you understand that he's the one that gets the work done, but he invites us to participate in it. And so we are key players in God's work, and yet he's the one that really does it. Knowing the difference between the midwife and the giver of life, we need to know that we are not the ones that give the life. I can't change a soul. And when we recognize that, it's very important because it puts us in our proper position. We recognize our need for God. God is the bringer of life. He's the giver of life, and we're not. However, we're like the midwife. I know that's strange for us guys in here. It's like, I don't want to be a midwife. However, that's sort of the idea. There's this travail. There's this labor, this forming within someone, and then what comes forth is life. And that's what we superintend. We are to share the gospel. We are to help deliver that newness of life. Ten P's of gospel cheering. So this is from two weeks ago, the part, part one. I went through the ten P's of gospel cheering. So I'm just going to go through those, give you an overview today. So if you want to be a wise soul and win souls for God, then these are ten P's that you need to see cultivated in your life. Gospel prayer number one. So each, the prayer is the P in this one. So to pray for the unction to pray. 
In other words, we need even the Spirit of God to enable us to pray. So as far as we're concerned, we don't even know how to pray. When you first start praying, you're like, God, I don't even know how to pray. And so what do you need? You need the ability to pray. So we pray for the unction to pray. And then gospel prayer number two, we pray for the unction to boldly confess. God, I'm a coward. I'm timid. Give me the strength and the boldness to begin to enunciate your truth to those around me. We were talking uh, today about uh, that one. Did you guys ever see Faith Like Potatoes? Uh, where that one guy in South, the, the, he became a pastor, I believe. I don't know what his exact title was. He was a farmer, a potato farmer. But he was changed by the gospel in rather rough territory in South Africa. And the first thing that someone told him to do was go out and share what had happened in him with three other people. Well, that's, that, that, that really uh, makes it clear. It's not necessarily even share the gospel. It's just share what God has done. And that's where we need to start. Most of us did not start out our new life in Christ articulating anything, sharing something. And as a result, it seems extra hard. I've used this illustration before, but when you walk into an elevator, there's a window of time where it's normal to say, hi, how are you? My name's Eric. But if you do not say something in that little gap of time, what happens? That window closes and it becomes extremely awkward to say anything. It's been five minutes. It's really strange to say, hi, And the same is true in our life as Christians. If we do not cultivate and exercise whatever that is inside of us to articulate and to freely speak of what God is doing in us, it becomes that much more awkward for us to ever do it in the rest of our life. And though we've been Christians for 20 years, we hardly ever utter a word about it to anyone who is not a Christian. That's just not right. So it's the unction to boldly confess, and then we pray for the unction for others to hear and receive, because we can't make them hear and receive, but we can pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to prepare those that we're going to speak to, to hear and receive. And this is, of course, just how revival works. Gospel pursuit number one. So now it's not just the prayer, but we also must do something. We can't just pray for souls. We must be willing to speak. We have the boldness to speak. Let's use it. So aggressively sowing the seed of Jesus Christ. And then gospel pursuit number two, consistency, consistently and relentlessly watering the soil with love. And so those in your life that you are willing to speak Jesus to, you do it with respect, you do it with honor, but you also are going to do it consistently. In other words, your life needs to showcase Jesus Christ. There's nothing worse than a Christian who lives opposite of Jesus but's talking about Jesus. We want to be consistent in our testimony, so that our words actually have weight. Gospel pursuit number three, boldly reaping the ready fruit. You see, there's a time when fruit is ready to be pulled from a tree. Someone is ready, and they're hungering for Jesus Christ. And we need to be willing to step right in and say, are you interested in Jesus Christ? Could I pray with you? Could I introduce you to the one I know you need? Are we willing to boldly pursue that? And then gospel pangs number one. This is what we're going to focus on today. And this is what takes the time in bringing someone from death unto life. And we're going to call it thoroughly bringing the ready soul through unto life. This isn't a 30-second prayer. This is actually superintending, like a midwife, walking that process of death unto life. They're in a kingdom of darkness, says the Bible, and they need to be brought into the kingdom of the dear son. So it's a transformation transferring of citizenship so do they even know that do they know that they've transferred from one kingdom into the other do they have any clue what is happening in their life 
They just prayed a quick prayer and we pat them on the back and say, go read your Bible. You see, what we are in a position to do is impart to them an understanding. It's almost like stick a tool belt around their waist, even though it's simple. And we say, here are the basics. This is what you have in Jesus Christ. Now go live. So then gospel push number one, the press to baptize. You see, baptism is the concept of being put into something. And so there is a press to baptize in water, but it's not how salvation comes. You see, they're already alive now in Christ because their baptism is in Christ by faith, which, of course, I'm going to walk through today. But then there's also a need to say, you know what, let's make a declaration of this. Let's confess this change of life through baptism. And then gospel practice, number one, immediate discipleship. I don't know, if I were to ask you how many of you came to Christ and then were immediately discipled, immediately pressed into an understanding of how to handle the word of God, who Jesus Christ is, how to appropriate the power of his shed blood in your life so that you can actually live this life. A lot of us just have a whole bunch of pieces of a house. It's like there's a two by four and there's some drywall. Uh, there's a screwdriver. There's a box of screws. I think I saw it over there behind the bush. In other words, we have stuff that builds a house, but we have no clue how to work those things together to actually have a house. And so you sort of lean two drywall pieces together and you make your home underneath it. And that's how a lot of us have lived in our Christian life. Is the drywall good drywall? It is, but it's not supposed to be outdoors exposed to the elements like that. You're sort of wondering why all these pieces are caving in on you. You see, it's not meant to be in the rain. You see, you have all those pieces. You have everything you need for a house, but no one has ever taught you the basics of putting it together, and that's what's called discipleship. Gospel practice number two, and this is the tenth one, the pressing toward prayer and confession. So in other words, what you're doing after you bring someone into the kingdom of heaven is you want to train them to actually do the same thing you're doing. In other words, it's replication. So you want to now teach them how to pray. You want to teach them how to begin to confess. You want to teach them how to lead someone through discipleship. So that's part of discipleship. Discipleship leads to more of this. So let's move into the message, the bucket of Jesus stuff. So I don't know, this might be a little different uh, illustration than my house, prince, house illustration I just gave you, but it's similar. You have a bucket of stuff. And so many of you even know everything that's in this bucket, everything I'm going to go through in the upcoming uh, minutes here is stuff that you may be familiar with, but oftentimes you don't quite know how to use them these ideas or these truths. Some of these things you may not know. In other words, the lack of discipleship in the church of Jesus Christ today is so shocking, but it's so normal to us that everyone else around us is in much of the dark as we are, and so it's just normal. And so most of us don't recognize how weak we are handing off that baton to someone else. So I'm going to say the bucket of Jesus stuff. This is just all these things, okay? Now, when you are giving the gospel, one of the key things that I want to say from my vantage point is it's not necessarily a formulaic method that I want to pass on to you to say, all right, here are the four things you need to share. Here are the six things you need to walk them through. Or here's the napkin uh, principle of writing down how to lead someone to Christ on a napkin. Or here's a little flip chart where you can take someone through in you know, a matter of three minutes. It's not even the criticism of those things because there's nothing wrong with necessarily having a tool, it's do you depend? Is your faith in a tool or is your faith in the power of the Spirit of God to awaken a soul? And that's where we want to emphasize 
it's not the tool. Tools aren't bad, but it's not the reliance on a tool is the danger. In other words, it, say you have a three-minute gospel, but you have two hours to spend with someone. Are you ready to fill those two hours with the good stuff? Or are you like at the end of your rope at the end of three minutes? It's like, I don't even know what to say to you beyond now. And they start asking you questions like, I don't know the answer to that. I just have the three-minute gospel. I want you to be equipped to know how to lead people from death unto life. And so I want you all to sort of have your bucket, and we're going to stick a whole bunch of key things into this bucket today. However, how you use those I don't mind if it's completely creative. The Holy Spirit is ingenious. He truly is. And I, I don't know that I can say that I've ever shared the gospel the exact same way twice. But it doesn't mean it was a different gospel. It just means it came from a different angle. When you're talking to a Buddhist, it's very different than when you're talking to a Christian who has really never given their life to Jesus Christ. I put quotes around the Christian, Christian by the way. In other words, there's a very different ambiance of discussion because oftentimes someone who grew up in the church, went to Sunday school growing up, they know a lot of things. Now for you, your job is to help them tie it together. I always describe people showing up at Ellerslie with a kitchen sink. Their kitchen sink is a perfectly valid part of a good house. There's nothing wrong with a kitchen sink. However, if they turn on their kitchen sink on the faucet, nothing comes out of it. And as a result, they're sort of mad at their kitchen sink. They kick their kitchen sink, a stupid sink. And yet it's really not the sink's fault. They have good doctrine as far as that goes in regards to their kitchen sink. But their kitchen sink is meant to be a part of something bigger. And that's the way discipleship works. If you don't understand what you've entered into, the kingdom of heaven, and you have no context of where you're at, then oftentimes you can end up carrying around a kitchen sink or maybe a chimney, and you can't figure out why smoke doesn't come out of your chimney. Well, you see, a chimney is supposed to be attached to a hearth. But a hearth doesn't just stand alone in the middle of a forest. It's actually a part of a house. A house? What's that? You see, we are entering into Christ Jesus, who is like a house. And that house needs to be built a certain way in our lives. So each of us is, in a sense, being built into a house. Paul called himself a master builder. And so if you're going to be a master builder, what would you do? Well, you don't start with a chimney and set it up, you know, 30 feet into the air and just have it hang. There's actually something beneath it. You need to dig a hole, lay a foundation. You need something sturdy at the bottom. And then you need to build some framing in there, some walls. Plumbing, electrical, it's going to prove very important to your kitchen sink a few steps down from now. You see, as you begin to go through this, there comes a point in time where I could tell you, all right, you remember that kitchen sink? You're like, yeah, set it here. You see, I don't need to teach them about a kitchen sink. They already know about a kitchen sink. So as a result, when I give a gospel, if someone has 90% of it already, I'm going to give them the 10% they don't know. The question is, do we know the 10% they don't know? And so what I want us to become familiar with is just, we, we call it the bucket of Jesus stuff. It's just truth. It's truth that is important to help someone understand how to walk in the most basic sense, physiologically, just to take a first toddler step. The practice of pursuing thorough conversion. A lot of us are sort of half-baked, right? Recipe, stuck in the oven on 350. What do you cook bread at, by the way? 445? 425. 425. Okay, so my 350 is definitely not going to do it. So a 425 for how long? 35 for 35 minutes. Have you proven this in Colorado? Because we're talking to a Colorado audience here. Okay, that might overcook it in Colorado. I don't know. Okay, so something like 425 for 35 minutes, Okay. And voila, out comes something that you intend. But however, many of us were stuck in at, you know, 225 uh, for 10 minutes. 
And as a result, what's coming out? Is it bread? Well, it's like bread, but it's not quite finished. And that's what I'm pointing at today, is there's not a finishing, there's not a thoroughness to the process of us being set, prepared for our next steps as Christians. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So I I agree with that. I say, let's let God build his church. So if we're going to be builders, Paul called himself a master builder. I wouldn't mind if all of us pursued the same end, that we would become master builders of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, what would it look like? Well, first, we know that it's the Lord that needs to do the building, but we still have our little shovel, and we're ready to go to work. So we are little master builders. He is the master builder. So big MB, God, little MB, master builder, us, the church. And the king command, and this is speaking of the temple in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. I don't know how many of you have ever thought of using costly stones and jewels to lay the foundation of a house. However, that's very important. When we're talking about foundations, we're dealing with some good stuff. And so the foundation of your life as a Christian needs to be laid very, very purposely with the strongest stuff, the stuff that if you're intending that this foundation will last for eternity, hey, let's build it right. If you thought it was going to last for a week, you'd build it completely different. But this is building for forever. And so God has already given us the foundation stones. Let's, let's go to what he has to say. Just imagine if we gave godly attention to the foundation. So we see how God gave his attention to the foundation. Costly stones, huge stones. I mean, these are massive. They're not going anywhere forever. Well, God gives attention to foundations. So what if we gave godly attention to the foundation? So someone is coming. They're hungry for the gospel. They're ready to be brought to Jesus Christ. Are we thinking foundation? Are we thinking, let's do this right? The problem with doing it right is it just takes time. And that's one of the things that we struggle with, especially Americans here. You know, 30-second prayers are a lot more convenient, let's just admit it, because then you can brag to all your Christian friends that you just prayed with someone. But to take the time with their soul to walk them through, oh, boy, I, I mean, I have things to do. Isn't this what we're here for? See, the wise soul wins souls. When we are willing to function as God functions, the wise man, we recognize that we want to see others built upon a rock as well. What to do with all this Jesus stuff? Helping put it together for them. So I'm going to go through an overview here, and I'm just going to read through it, and then we're going to go through it a little slower. But the one thing I want you to do is not use this as just formulaic. I don't want you to just sit down with your list and say, all right. At the same time, these are just truths. How you apply these truths are going to be led of the Holy Spirit. So, number one, do they see their need? If I'm talking with someone, if they don't see their need for Jesus Christ, do you know that it's sort of hard to take them any further? And so if they don't see their need, they may not yet be ready. That doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't continue caring for them, praying for them, even sharing with them. However, there's a certain point when you know that a piece of fruit is ready to be pulled from the tree. And when it's ready, you begin to recognize that. And so, do they see their need? If the answer is yes, then do they see their Savior? Because someone can see their need, but then reject Jesus Christ as the solution to it. 
But do they see their need and are they recognizing that Jesus is that answer? See, the Holy Spirit is the one that makes that known to them. However, you must superintend this process as a midwife to say, yes, they're ready. And they see that it is Jesus. It's really hard to get someone to turn to Jesus who doesn't want Jesus. The Holy Spirit, though, on the other hand, is the one that introduces people to Jesus even through our words. Do they believe in their saviors? There's a difference between knowing about something and believing. Believing is an action of the soul that puts reliance on something. So it's not just knowing that this guy named Jesus lived. You know, there's a lot of people in this world today that believe that Jesus is a historic character and that he actually died on a cross, even that he rose again on the third day. However, are you willing to lean all your weight upon the fact that his work on the cross saves you? To do that, you have to forsake all things that you are trusting and lean completely on him. I remember this one scientist was saying, it's like a chair. And I could say, do you think this chair would hold you up? And you may say, yes, but that doesn't mean you believe. Believe would be different than just knowing that it could hold you up or knowing scientifically that maybe it was designed to, but you actually sit in it. And to sit in it is to put your confidence in it. And when you do that, that is the action of what we know as faith, but believe is the verb. Have they repented? You see, it's not just sitting in the chair or believing in Jesus, but you also must turn from that which you have trusted in, that which you have put previous reliance on. You must forsake that and believe. So repent and believe. Are they in Christ? Now, I'm going to walk through all these things, but that's a positional thing, which comes as a result of faith or believing in their Savior. So, because if they're in Christ, and you can establish that, you're walking through them, and they understand what it means to be in Christ, then guess what? All the house of God is opened up to them. Everything that they, their soul needs is now available to them. Forgiveness is available to them. He washes them of their sin. He gets rid of all their guilt. He protects them. He is the perfect behavior they must have in order to get to the Father, because they now have access unto the Father. But they, in and of themselves, cannot do it. They have to be perfect. They have to be righteous. But now, since they're in Jesus, his behavior is bequeathed to them. His good work, his life that was sinless, is now theirs. It's bequeathed to them as clothing. So now they are able to get to the Father, and he gets them to the Father. Have they confessed? You see, there's two different forms of confession. Their sins. Have they been willing to use this tongue to articulate that their life was wrong? And have they used this tongue to now confess that his life is right? And so they confess their sins, but also their new loyalty. I am in Christ, and I belong to him now. And as a result, I am forgiven. I am established in the truth. I am a son or a daughter of the King of Kings. To use this tongue to begin to enunciate is a very, very important part of establishing that newness of life. Have they forgiven? You see, it's not just have they received forgiveness, but have they forgiven others? So... I don't know how many of you, when you were first being walked through the gospel, were asked, is there anyone that you need to forgive? It's like, well, that's like 20 years from now I deal with that stuff. No, that's actually right now. You want to know what will impede your Christian walk? It's holding on to unforgiveness. You see, God has forgiven you, and he's given you a grace now in Christ to forgive others. But since most of us aren't told that, we hold on to this bitterness and resentment for who knows how long in our life. Why don't we just clean clean this place up right in the very beginning? Have they renounced? And I'll go through what these things mean. Have they defected? That doesn't mean are they defective. Uh, Have they defected, which means to leave one kingdom to enter another. Number six, have they fully identified with Christ's work? 
You see, do they recognize that if they're in Christ, that means they're in Christ's work? So, do they know that when he went to the cross, that they went with him? Do they know that when he went to the tomb, that they were buried with him? So, have they walked through self-denial? Have they removed from the seat and allowed him to take the throne of their life? And no longer they are in control of their existence. Do they recognize what this means to come unto Jesus Christ and to crown him king of their life? It means to bend the knee and declare that he is their captain. Have they poured out their spikenard? Is there anything in the cabinet or the pantry of their life that they are leaning on and they are trusting in other than Jesus? And if so, would they be willing to take it to Jesus right now and break it open on him? Do they know that when he rose again, that they rose again with him and that they have newness of life in Christ Jesus? Do they know that when he ascended to the Father, since they are in him, that they ascend with him? And do they know that when he entered the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, that they enter in with him? Do they know and understand these things? That's how we get to the Father. Because we're in Christ, Christ is on a journey. He's on an adventure. He goes to the cross. He goes to the grave. He rises again, ascends to be with the Father. We're in him. Therefore, we go with him. That's how we get into the Holy of Holies. That's how we boldly approach the throne of grace. It's in Christ. Do they know that that they have been brought into the very near and intimate presence of the king of kings? Do they know that the father has legally adopted them as his child? You see, all of this is legal matters. When you, by faith, believe in Jesus, there's a lot of stuff happening. And to recognize it from the very beginning, as opposed to 20 years down the road, that you're actually a son or a daughter of the king. By faith in Christ, you have actually been brought near unto his throne room of grace. And where he sits, you now sit. Didn't anyone ever tell you that? You see, this is called identification in Christ. This is the basics of how the gospel works. When you believe, just as way back in the beginning, 57, 5,800 years ago, when Adam and Eve failed, and Adam, hunk, eats of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, and it says, the day in which you eat of that fruit, says God, you will die. It's called the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. And in the New Testament, it says, One man's sin, in one man's sin, we all sinned because we're all in Adam. We're all of his genetic race, of his heritage. We're all of Adam. So therefore, when he sinned, we were in him. And as a result, we share in his sins the repercussions of his sin. However, when one man was righteous, when one man was victorious, when one man defeated death, when one man absorbed the wrath of God, When one man did it, named Jesus, and we believe in him, we are transferred from Adam and that heritage, which leads to death, to Jesus and his heritage, which leads to life. So when we are in Christ, just as when Adam ate of the fruit, we, in a sense, ate of the fruit, well, when Jesus died, in a sense, we died. And when he was buried, in a sense, we were buried. And when he rose again, in a sense, we were raised to newness of life. And when he ascended to be with the Father, we ascended to be with the Father. And when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, so did we. And that's what it says in Ephesians 2. We are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. So he sits down as king of kings at the right hand of the Father. Do they know that they sit with him? Why would you leave that for some later date? This is everything to a Christian. It's strength, it's position, it's authority. The devil no longer can use you as his plaything. You are no longer under his authority. You're under the authority of the king of all kings, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ. You see, when you know this at the beginnings 
of your Christianity. It changes how you live out your Christianity. Do they know that he makes available to them his own personal inheritance? Everything that belongs to him is now made available to those that believe. Have they reckoned this gospel truth? Have they presented and yielded their body unto their king? Have they asked the Father for the Holy Spirit, for life, eternal life, to come in? Have they let not sin reign any longer? So, we've been given everything we need as Christians for life and godliness, and everything we need for the next step of our Christian life is actually made available to us. However, most of us were not given that information. And as a result, we've stumbled through our Christian development as opposed to walked through in an ever-maturing, sanctifying manner in the kingdom of heaven. We have done a lot more crawling than toddling and running. In other words, we've really struggled in our development. And I say, let's allow God to ground us so that we can more effectively pass on to others a strong foundation. So let's walk through this list of 10 things. Do they see their need? Obviously, that is not something you can make happen inside of them. However, very often, it's the church of Jesus Christ that participates in the process of them having that happen in their life. It comes from questions that we bring to their soul. It comes from sharing things about our life, even having our life be a witness to them, because they recognize that when we go through the same thing they do, they collapse, they give way to anxiety and fear, and we're strong, rejoicing, singing, turning outward and serving other people around us. It's like, whoa, what's that? You see, they begin to see need in them. One of the number one things that has changed people's lives over the centuries is actually the martyrdom of Christians. Because when you see a Christian being fed to wild beasts, singing and rejoicing, what it's done is it's always been the seed of the church because people say, I don't have what that person has. And they actually crave. The, the person they're craving what they have is dying. And yet what they know is that they are missing something. It awakens something within them. So our testimony, our lives actually work to bring this about. However, it's still God using our testimony and using our lives. It's actually not us that does it. It's God. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, as it's been said throughout Christian history, that the law is the great teacher and the great awakener of the soul. You see, it sounds like a really bad tool, doesn't it, to use the law? Because we're not under law. No, you're not under law. You see, if you are still in Adam, you're under a law called the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. You're separated from God. And all of us, in a sense, are under this law. And so when you bring this law to bear upon their soul, they recognize every sinner has the opportunity by the power of the Spirit to recognize that they are at enmity with the God of the universe. And so the law is a schoolmaster, which leads us to Christ, as Paul says. And so it is a tool that actually can be used. You'll see, if you ever watch any of the Ray Comfort videos, he's always using the law. And he walks them through the law, and it brings conviction. The law doesn't save a man, but it shows the man that he has need of a Savior. Number two, do they see their Savior? You see, they could know that they're wrong, 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that they see that Jesus Christ can save them. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I recognize how politically incorrect it sounds that Jesus is the only way to the Father. However, there's only one means of salvation. So therefore, if I'm going to really help a soul and they see their need, I also need to address the fact that Jesus is the answer. And I I know that sounds really high-minded, doesn't it? That I'm going to think that I just happen to have a corner on the truth and that I'm going to supply them with the one thing out of all the universe that can save them. And how did you come to this, Eric? Well, the same way you're coming to it right now, the Holy Spirit. You see, God is pursuing us, and he uses us to pursue others. There still is only one means of salvation. And I recognize what that sounds like in amidst our multicultural mentalities where every religion is equal. However, we're talking about truth, not just a religion. We're talking about that which saves, not just that which somehow inoculates a soul to make them feel like they're fine with God. Truth sets free. This is the truth, and I didn't come up with it, and neither did you. The fact that we, God has condescended to introduce it to us should cause us to worship him day and night for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for showing me this, and may I be a good steward with it. If you knew that this was the only means of salvation, what would you do with it? You would do something, I hope. And he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This isn't just for a select group. This is for the whole world that he became a just and satisfying offering in our stead. That's what the word propitiation means. Number three, do they believe in their Savior? So as you're walking a soul through this, you're leading them. First of all, you recognize that they have need. They sense their need. And then do they see Jesus as the answer to that need? Then you need to lead them through the process of how they access the solution of Jesus Christ. And it's not complex. That's what's amazing. We as Christians love to add things to it, but technically it's very simple. They need to believe. It's like, believe, and? What else? Now there's other accoutrements to what believe means. Sort of like, if, you, if I believed that you had something for me to drink and it would save my life, yet my cup is full of polluted water, what would I do? If I truly believed, and you said, would you receive of this good water, what would I do? He would say, dump out what you have so that you can receive it. And that's what it means to repent and believe. In other words, we have something that is filling the hole. And that needs to be removed so that we can receive the solution by faith. But the faith is what saves. It's not just the repentance that saves. That getting rid of dirty water didn't actually give you the good stuff. However, to receive the good stuff, you have to be willing to dump out the bad. Let go of it. Repent and believe. You see, when you are coming into Christ, there is, it's very important that you, if you are trusting something else, like in the, I gave the illustration, I think it was this week, maybe it was last week, to the uh, basic students. But uh, Bruce Olson, when he was talking to the Modalone tribe, uh, was trying to describe what faith was. And so they all live in a common house all these tribal people, and they all ha- tie their hammocks to the rafters. And so they just hang and sleep at night. It's r- rather strange to us here in America that they would do that, hang up in the, in the rafters. That's how they sleep. And so when he was trying to describe faith, he's like, hmm. it's like tying your hammock strings into Jesus. 
and then getting in and going to sleep. You see, if you truly believe that he can hold you up, prove it. Tie your hammock strings into Jesus and lay down. And that's faith. So do they believe in their Savior? Are they turning unto Christ to be saved? Or are they just turning unto Christ to please you? There's a big difference between the two. In other words, this is what we want to superintend as a midwife and be watchful over, that they are believing in their Savior. See, when someone believes, they are saved. And it's okay to get excited. When someone believes, they simply look in childlike confidence unto their Savior. That is what saves. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you have not believed in Jesus, then you are still in Adam, and the wrath of God is still upon you. You are still under the effects of sin. However, when you believe, you have life, because you've entered into the author of life, Jesus Christ. That life is made available to those who simply will turn and trust him with their life. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. So there's denominations in the church of Jesus Christ that believe that you also need to be baptized in order to be saved. And here's what I would say. That is correct, that you must believe and be baptized. However, what you think that means is different than what it means. What you think when it says that is that you need to get into water and be baptized. And by believing and getting into water and being baptized, you'll be saved. It's actually not what this is saying. Baptism, baptizo, is to be put into something. And so what you are, by faith, it says in the rest of Scripture that we enter into Christ by faith. So as a result, when you believe, you are baptized into Christ. You are put in Him. And that is what saves you. He is the saving device, not water. He is the saving device, and it is by faith alone. So yes, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But I could say it maybe for you to understand it a little better. He that believes and is put into Christ shall be saved. But he that does not believe shall be damned. It's that simple. So have they repented? So this is one of those awkward things because in modern America, repentance is just a bad word. Repent! It just sounds bad. It's the equivalent of just saying, hey, hey buddy, you're, you're headed in the wrong direction. If you keep going that way, you die. Could you turn around and, and head the direction of truth? To do it, you have to give up a previous way, though. You have to forsake. You have to even acknowledge that the way you were going was killing you. And that's hard for a lot of people. Pride is a massive hindrance from people coming to Christ. But still, no matter how you feel about it, no matter how they might feel about it, it still needs to be walked through. We need to repent. Have they turned away from all things prior and turned unto Christ? Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Number five, are they in Christ? What's your position? In Christ. So if you're in Christ and you're confident in Christ, what I want you to begin to do is beget that into others. I want them to have a confidence of their position. How do they gain that position? Simply by faith. 
And so a lot of people are in Christ by faith, but don't know that they're in Christ. And as a result, all the promises in Scripture to those who are in Christ, they don't recognize that they're theirs. So as a very inception point for a new believer, why not impart to them the understanding of being in Christ? Because they are in Christ by faith. One of the the key things that I walk through with a lot of people is, how do I know that God wants me? How do I know that my sins aren't too grievous for this God to receive me? One of the things that you'll hear me oftentimes say is, do you want Jesus? Do you want to be saved by Jesus? Yes. There's your evidence right there. You see, the fact that you want Jesus means you have not offended him to the point where the Holy Spirit is not pursuing you because you would not want Jesus if he didn't first want you. And so one of the classic evidences to our soul, I call it an invitation. When you want Jesus, that's the sign that he has given you an invitation because he does not play games with us. He is not capricious. He does not stick his hand out for a handshake and then when we reach out to it, he pulls it back and walks it through his hair. In other words, when he says, I want you, And you say back, I really want you, Jesus. That's the surest sign that he's already said to you, I want you. And he cannot lie, and he's not playing games. That means the God of the universe is after you. So, say yes. It's it's actually not complex. There's a lot of complexity to Christianity, don't get me wrong. I mean, for the rest of eternity, we could be trolling the depths of it. However, to enter into the kingdom of heaven is childlike faith. I believe that what he said is true. And that what Jesus Christ did for me is what I need to be saved. That he is, in fact, my Savior. And when I put my simple, childlike confidence in him and tie my hammock strings into Jesus Christ, that I am, in fact, saved. But get this, that I am now clothed in Jesus. That when I believe, he clothes me in his work on that cross. So now what clothes me is Jesus. I am in Christ, like clothing, like a tower, like walking through a door into a tower. Well, now that fiery arrow can't hit me like it did before. Like entering into a plane. You can try and flap your arms all you want, but you're not flying. But you enter into that plane and sit down and abide in that plane and trust that it can fly for you. And what does it do? It takes you from here to the throne of grace. By faith in the ability of that to fly for you, that to do the work for you. So are they in Christ? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And you could literally share this with their soul. Did you know that by faith you're now in Christ? And what it says in 2 Corinthians is, therefore, if any man be in Christ or a woman, he is or she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And they could say, but I don't feel new yet. And yet it's still true because this is what we live off of. It's faith in the word of God not in our experience or our emotions. What follows, if you believe this, is you truly do become a new creature. So if you are in Christ, then you have all sorts of benefits. The way I liken it to is the lake house next door. And a lot of us have gotten into the lake house, which is Christ. Let's use that as the illustration of Christ. And so we've entered in because it was sleeting and snowing and, you know, I don't know, hailing. I don't know how many different things it can be doing at once out here. And uh, I don't know what temperature it is, but let's make it very, very cold. And you have seen the invitation, and it said, psst, hey, come on in. And so you have entered into Christ, but you're hiding in the coat closet. Because to you, the singular promise that is available to you in Christ is eternal life and preservation from the judgment to come. So you will not be thrown into the lake of fire with all those that have rejected Christ. 
And so that's the coat closet. And as a result, you hang out in there and you feel somewhat guilty even being in the house. And you're actually scared that God's going to find you one day and boot you out because you're not deserving to be in there. You see, your understanding of how the cross works is skewed. And then one day, someone opens up the coat closet looking for a broom and they, they find you instead. And they pull back the, the coats like, what are you doing here? They go, shh, don't, don't, don't give my location away. Please, I just want to somehow make it to the end. You know, if you're in the house, that means you're a son or a daughter of the king of kings. This, this whole place is yours. Let me take you on a tour. So I'm going to take you on a mini tour. This isn't quite as full as the tour could be. I have a message called In Christ, which goes through, it's like a close to full tour. It's really powerful. So this is a room called forgiveness. You know that he forgives you? You know that a lot of us try and get forgiven or clean ourselves up before we come into Christ. But actually, the cleaning tools are in Christ. So by faith, you enter into Christ, and he cleans you in Christ. That's where a lot of us get it backwards. We think we have to live a good life, and then Christ will accept us. When in fact, what he did for us was because we can't fix ourselves. And so he has made a way and opened a door and say, by faith, you can access my forgiveness. And so when we believe, we are forgiven. It comes with the house. It comes with his work on the cross. What's your position? That means you have the forgiveness of sins. What about my really grievous ones? Uh Uh-huh. He forgives all sin. This is how he works. In whom, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him, We have the forgiveness of sins. It says, in Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Praise God. He washes them. So do they know that they're washed, not just forgiven, but actually washed of their sin? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. that, That means all. All means all. It cleanses us from all sin. He gets rid of all their guilt. I love this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have a conscience that the enemy is constantly poking at. He's saying, but you know what you did. And some of us, especially those that have been Christians for a while, you knew you shouldn't do it, and you did it anyways. And what's the enemy poking at? I mean, it's a sore spot in our soul. Well, if you're in Christ, did you know you have forgiveness of that, those sins? And he washes you and cleanses you from all sin. And he'll even purge out that sensitive spot. He'll purge your conscience so that the enemy can no longer poke at it. You see, this is what he does. He protects them. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Could you imagine, for those, of, those that struggle with fear and anxiety, just to begin their Christian walk of recognizing that they're in Christ now? You see, if you're in Christ, that's in Ephesians 6, it's called the armor of God. He's known as a strong tower or a refuge. Okay, if you're in a refuge, are you going to fear the, the fiery arrows of the enemy anymore? If you know that you have a shield that is literally 10 miles thick of solid diamond that is, what, a thousand miles high, a thousand miles, uh, you know, wide? I mean, are you going to fear a little dinky arrow being shot at you? It's like, ding, it just bounces right off. 
See, if you're in Christ, you need to recognize that you are in Christ. And nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He is the perfect behavior they must have to get to the Father. But I have lived such a bad life. I have not done what I'm supposed to do. But he is the behavior that you don't have. You see, if you're needing to whip out some behavior and show God, you don't have it. However, what we do have is him. So if you're standing before the judgment seat and the judge says, by what means, by what merit can you stand and enter the kingdom of heaven? None of my own. But the shed blood of Jesus clothes me. That's my plea. And that will always, for all eternity, be our plea. It's not what we do. It's what he does. Now, underneath this clothing is a real work of grace, and he's changing us so that we don't behave like that old guy that we used to be. He's changing us, but we're not saved by our changedness. We're saved by his perfection and his righteousness. That's where our faith lies. It doesn't lie at any point along the Christian journey in our perfection or our dollar bills of righteousness that we've earned. It doesn't matter how many people you even lead to Christ. We do this because we love him. It's an outflow. It's fruit that is born because we're grafted into him. It's not what justifies us. It's not what causes us to enter into the throne room of grace. It's his work and his work alone that makes that way open to us. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Where? In him. If you're in Christ, then you are made the righteousness of God. Well, how did you get into Christ? By faith. Faith is the access into all of this treasure trove. He gets them to the Father. Somehow he can get us there. He can get us to the Father. The great end destination is getting us to the Father, safe and secure for all eternity. Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he gets us there, offering his own shed blood as the means. So have they confessed? When you're walking through a soul, with a soul, you know, this is for some of you. Some of you in here are either right on the cusp of coming to Jesus, or you just came to Jesus. And as a result, these are very important things for you, and I want you to know that you don't have to walk through this with another person necessarily, even though it can be very helpful. Just the Holy Spirit. These truths, they're just laid out for you. Just walk through them. And it's a beautiful process of what God will do in your life. There is something very precious about confession and an audience. It's hard to describe the impact of it. You're not saved by confession. You're not saved by standing up and saying, Jesus is my Lord. You're saved by faith in Jesus being your Lord. However, when you are saved by faith, then to exercise that properly, to firmly plant it, sort of like a seed in soil. If you really want that seed to grow, what do you do? Well, you plant it a certain way. And confession is part of the firming up. Sort of like wet clay becoming firm clay, hardened clay. When you confess with your tongue, it like solidifies that faith. It makes it strong. And so that's why we always want to encourage someone to confess and to use this tongue. You see, this tongue in James is called the littlest member, and it's set on fire by the fires of hell. And you can always tell the genuine attributes of a Christian by how they handle their tongue. If they handle their tongue in accordance with the flesh, in accordance with hell's agenda, guess what? It shows that this life hasn't been changed. But if they handle this tongue 
the way the Spirit would handle it, to give forth life and love. Well, guess what? That's a signal that their life has been changed. And so this littlest member is like a flag on the top of our head. And it's basically saying, yeah, I'm with Christ. No, I'm not with Christ. And so how we handle this tongue from the very onset of our new birth, use that tongue now. Allow the Spirit of God to handle that tongue. Now, I I know what some of you might be thinking when I say that. Acts 2. What did the Holy Spirit grab? It's the first thing he grabbed when he filled those believers in the upper room. He grabbed tongues. Now, I know that that makes a lot of us uncomfortable in here. The conservatives are like, oh, what do we do with that? It's okay. It's safe. The Holy Spirit is after a tongue. Just know that. When he claims the body as his territory, he says, mine. This is my tongue now. And as a result, it speaks words of life. It speaks words of truth. It doesn't speak the acidic words of hell. Those words that tear down, that defile, that gossip, that betray. No more. This life has been set free. So use this tongue, now exercise it for the purposes of heaven. So we need to confess sins. So we actually give space for someone to articulate their wrongness. Confession is merely saying, I was wrong. My behavior was wrong. God's behavior is right. God's word says this is wrong. I trust God's word that this, that this behavior is in fact wrong. He's right. I'm wrong. That's in a sense what confession is. And so when someone uses this tongue to acknowledge their wrongness before God and God's rightness, it has an incredible effect on our life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Also to confess our new loyalty. Listen to this. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's something about confession being associated with this initial movement of grace in our life. That when we're willing to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. Now, you know how it actually seems to indicate in Scripture that someone who is not born of God cannot say Jesus is Lord? Isn't that a, a weird one? Like, should you come up to someone and say, can you say the words Jesus is Lord? You're like, Jesus is Lord? And you're like, what? Uh, I don't know if it works. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't really ever tested that. I've had the thought that maybe I should test a few people on that. However... To begin to realize that there's something about the confession of the lordship and the mastery of Jesus over this body that is extremely important. Be willing to do it. For some of you, you may have never, ever done it in your life. But to find opportunity in your life, maybe the next little small group you get to or the next meeting on this Thursday, to get up and actually confess. To let this tongue be used for the Holy Spirit's purpose to enunciate what has taken place in your life. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he in God. Have they forgiven others? So, we come to that point where it's like, all right, you're in Christ. You have the benefits of Christ. God is doing all this great stuff. But now, remember that room called forgiveness? It's not just forgiveness for your sake, like your sins. But it's also that you would forgive others. You see, God actually makes it clear that if you do not forgive others of their sin, he won't forgive you of yours. So there's a flow-through channel that needs to be created. You don't just receive the grace of God and then stop it for others. But you open up the spigot and say, God, through me, you forgive me, I forgive others. By the grace that I've received from you, I give it to others. The mercy I've received from you, I give it to others. You need to forgive. If you don't forgive, it curdles your soul. It hardens your heart. God wants us to start out our Christian walk correctly. And when you stand praying, forgive. 
If you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Whoa. Whoa, uh, let's not mess with unforgiveness. I don't even want to follow through on what that sounds like then. That means you are still unforgiven if you are unwilling to be a flow-through channel of that grace. And I, this semester, I'll go through a message with the students called uh, Power to Forgive. Ooh, it's serious stuff. But at the same time, it's just beautiful. Because even though these things are lingering in Scripture, don't have them be condemning statements. Have them be spirit-led, moving statements to cause you to say, God, I want to be in agreement with you. If there is anything in my soul that is hindering, anything that I'm holding against someone else, I have a room called forgiveness, and there's grace to forgive there. So therefore, I'm going to go into that room in Christ, and I'm going to say, here in Christ, I forgive. Have they renounced sin? So when you participate in sin, what you're doing, in a sense, is signing sort of a legal document. It's like, yes, Eric Ludi signs on the bottom of this little document. The enemy comes up with a steak dinner, and we say, oh, that looks nice. He says, just sign right here, and you can have that steak dinner. And we just sign away. We have no idea what we're doing. We don't understand that, we, first of all, we're starting out in a covenant with death. That's where we start. And if you're in a covenant with something, you know that you cannot marry another. You can, that'd be adultery. So as a result, we're in a covenant with death, and here's Jesus, our bridegroom, but we can't marry Jesus because we've actually entered into a covenant with death, which is why death is necessary to free us to be able to serve Jesus Christ and enter into covenant with Jesus Christ. His death is what severs that covenant with death so that we now are free to enter into a covenant with life. But we also have little things that we've signed to weigh our life to. Uh, anxiety and fear is a classic one. Lust. These little things where we get a tantalizing temptation, we exchange out a little signature here, and now there's a hold. And it starts as a toehold, and then it grows to a foothold, and then it becomes a stronghold in our life. Technically, if you are in Jesus Christ, the enemy has no legal right to stay in your life. However, what if no one ever tells you that those strongholds have no legal right to stay? They stay because you never push them out. Renouncing is the equivalent of being plugged into a power source and a light is turned on. You're like, how do I get that light off? Well, in this case, a light is a good thing, but you unplug the power source. We are plugged into a dark power and we've willingly done it. And so what do we need to do? Unplug. In the authority that we have in Jesus Christ, you literally go through your house and gunk, 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 and you unplug the power sources, the different footholds and strongholds, and you do it in the authority of the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I renounce anxiety. I am no longer a servant to it. I'm no longer under its thumb. I am under the thumb of Jesus. If I'm under a thumb, I'm under his headship, his control. No longer am I under any of these other things. Yet how many of us have never even heard something so radical as that? And that's not radical. That's the most basic dimensions of starting in the life of Christ. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And in thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. When you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left... 
You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornaments of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. So this is in the Old Testament. It's a pattern that we see, which is actually, even though we don't have molded images of gold and images of silver, that isn't what we understand, but we have other things that have exalted themselves in our life and become idols. They have taken the position of Christ in our life. We have depended upon them. We have worshiped them. We have given place to them in our life. And so what is the statement? You will say to them, get away. In other words, it no longer has a position. Throw them out. Defile them. Do you remember uh, who's the king that uh, destroyed all the images? What was his name? It starts with a J. Josiah. That's basically how we start out our Christian life. We are newly changed by Jesus Christ. And God says, go throughout the land and defile these images. Topple them over. Turn them to dust. They have no rightful place in the territory of a believer. And you have the authority given by God, just as Josiah did, to literally topple these images in your life. Get away, we say. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So now this is the New Testament church. And what we'll see is a similar pattern. So many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So they literally desecrated or destroyed those things in their life which they had given themselves to before. I remember I destroyed a whole bunch of uh, CDs and movies uh, when, I was, when I, God was doing something in my life, and I'm like, oh, and I pulled a Josiah in my life. It doesn't, I don't know that it has to be some big fire-burning thing. Uh, you know, I'm always laboring to see that Christians aren't any more weird than we already are. At the same time, there is something about fire that symbolizes destruction. And so if it helps you to light, you know, one of those old love letters, you know, on fire and throw it into the fireplace and let it burn, that thing that has had a hold and a distraction on your soul, then do it. In other words, if it would be an exercise, because the key exercise is one of faith, spiritually to renounce and to give no space, just like external baptism in water is a confession. If it helps to make an external confession of something with, you know, burning up something, I'm not going to be against it. I think it's, there's perfectly uh, you know, fine pr- uh, premise uh, here for it. So have they defected from the kingdom of darkness? If someone is living in this kingdom, the key is that they recognize that they have legal citizenship in a new kingdom, which means we can't have dual citizenship. It's, it's different than a lot of the ways that citizenship works today, but you literally need to denounce your previous citizenship. You need to forsake it. You no longer have a citizenship in Adam and in this world, which means this world will not favor you anymore. You recognize that you are giving up the luxuries and the privileges of the world to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Have you defected? Have you left that one kingdom to enter into the kingdom of the dear son? Because when you're in this kingdom, your head is the devil. It's the principle of sin in the flesh. But when you leave that, you're leaving that as a controlling element and you're coming under a new head who is Jesus Christ, which means you can't straddle and have one foot in either kingdom. In the early church, you had the Romans who were trying to defile the early Christians. 
And they basically approach the Christians with a singular option. You're going to be fed to wild beasts as our entertainment, or you can just say these words, Caesar is Lord. It's not that hard. It's just a few words. However, it's the use of the tongue to declare something as a reality of occupied territory. And these Christians, one after the other, would die. Now, some of them did fail in those situations, but those that stood firm literally changed the course of history. They would not use this tongue to defile it with something that was not true because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Number six, have they fully identified with Christ's work? So, what's your position? If you're in Christ, that means that when he did his work, you are in that work. This is how he designed it. This is how the New Testament enunciates it. So therefore, when he went to the cross, he went to the cross for you. But when you believe in him, you share in his cross. So when he's hanging on that tree 2,000 years ago, strangely, you're there. You're sharing in that work. He goes to the cross. Do they know that they go with him? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, our previous life. Remember, we must be born anew. We must be a new creature. But our old creature must be destroyed. That old creature, not us, but it's that old operation, that old Adamness in us. And so when Jesus went to the cross, by faith we share in his work. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And so we died. How did we die? In Christ. In his death, we were crucified with him. Our old man is disposed of. The body of sin is destroyed. Therefore, we no longer serve sin. He goes to the tomb. Do they know that they were buried with him? You see, when Jesus died, he went to a tomb. Why? To a grave, to be buried. You see, burial is a concept of putting something out of sight. It's no longer visible. Our old life, which was crucified, is no longer seen. We now live a new life. And what happens? The stone rolls away. Old life left behind. New man emerges. Know you not that so many of us, as were baptized or put into Jesus Christ, were baptized or put in to his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Have they denied self? So there's a seat in each of our lives. We'll call it a throne. Thwonk. And all of us are caught, red-handed, sitting in that seat. But that seat is not ours. It belongs to Jesus Christ, our rightful creator. He designed our bodies with a seat, a seat of control. When we sit in that seat, we are in defiance and rebellion against God. And the wages of us sitting in that seat, which is known as sin, to sit in that seat, is death. And the effects of our life, our body doesn't work. Our life does not produce fruit that is pleasing to God. So the secret is, we need to recognize that God has set us free from that seat. He has somehow put a solvent on the super glue that has kept us there. And now he says, humble yourself, deny yourself. And so we bend our knee and we give him that seat. And so if you're walking someone through the gospel, I would highly encourage you to talk about that seat, that seat of fulfillment, that seat of life, that seat of control. And as long as they sit in it to find their own fulfillment, they, they live in death. But if they're willing to relinquish that seat, if they're willing to die to themselves, then they will live. 
You actually find life, it's a strange thing, but you find life in giving up control. And when he said, and he said to them all, Jesus speaking, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Have they poured out their spikenard? Remember Mary of Bethany? Mary of Bethany had an object of trust, an object of faith. It was called spikenard. And when she saw the, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the perfection of her Savior, she took that thing that she had put trust in. It was worth a year's wages. I mean, she could lean on this at a time of need. However, instead of leaning on a box of spikenard, she wanted to lean on Jesus from this point forward. So she took that box and she broke it open on Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman has done be told for memorial of her. Well, I figure we might as well throw it in then. In other words, if we're really sharing the gospel with someone, why don't we share what this woman has done and encourage them? Do you have any spikenard in your pantry? And they go, spikenard? Well, anything that you are, is an object of trust, anything that you're putting confidence in and replacing God confidence, anything that you would lean on instead of God, are you willing to bring that unto Jesus? He rises again. Do they know that they rise with him? If you're in Christ, when he dies, you die. When he's buried, you're buried. But when that stone is rolled away and he rises again, we rise in Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. He ascends to the Father. Do they know that they ascend with him? What's your position? In Christ. You see, if you're in Christ, that means you were with him at that cross. That means you were with him when he was buried, just as we were with Adam when he ate of the fruit. We are in Christ, therefore, in the cross, we die. Old man, old Eric, dead. Buried, old Eric, no longer visible. That life is no more. Stone rolls away, Christ rises, we're in him. We rise to newness of life. We are made a new creature in Christ. And then where does he take us? He takes us to the throne room of grace. He takes us to be with the Father. He ascends, and who's in him? We are. There we are going. I know you're sitting down here, and you're like, I'm, I'm here, Eric. What in the world are you saying? I'm up there. You see, your spirit man is hidden in Christ. Where's his body? It's up there in heaven, seated in a heavenly place. Where's your body? Right down here. However, your spirit is in his body there, and where's his spirit? in your body down here. It's called an exchange. The exchange life is what Hudson Taylor called it. You see, we function in this body down here in Christ, with Christ in us. And that's how Christianity is enabled and empowered. He ascends to the Father. Do they know that they ascend with him? Even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together with Christ? Quickened means to be made alive. By grace, you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know that seems strange. You're sitting here in Windsor, Colorado in a chapel building. And yet, spiritually speaking, what the Bible promises, which cannot lie, it says you are actually in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you are where he is. 
That's why nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Could you imagine trying to get into the throne of grace and rob you from Jesus? It's like impenetrable barrier. Because no one can even approach that place without perfect righteousness. Good luck. There's only one that has ever gained it, and that's Jesus Christ. The only one that can condemn you is your Savior. There is no one that can rest, that can rest you away from him. He enters the Holy of Holies as our great high priest. Do they know that they enter with him? And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. When Jesus died, what happened in the temple of God? This huge curtain. It was like 300 men to carry us. This massive curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. And that which protected, I mean literally protected the Jews from the awful presence of God, which is holy, holy, holy. And anyone who is not holy, holy, holy will die in such a presence. And yet when Jesus died, he gave us the means by which to both enter into that throne of grace, his shed blood, but he also allowed that which was hidden in that, behind that veil to now enter into us so that we could take into all the world. That which was locked in a 20 cubit by 20 cubit box known as the Holy of Holies is now inside of those that believe and we are mobile. He brings you into the very near and intimate presence of the King of Kings. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. Who is that new and living way? It's Jesus which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He legally adopts you as his child. Legally, there is a transfer. You do not just become a citizen of heaven. Anyone who believes in Christ Jesus is more than a citizen. I don't know how you feel about your past life if you are worthy and deserving of being close to the presence of God, but if you were being brought into the, the kingdom of heaven, like say some messenger came and picked you up and said, yeah, the king beckons you, wouldn't you be expecting that there are different districts in the kingdom of heaven? You know, you have your poor district and you have, you know, your middle class and maybe your upper class, and then you have like your royal family type of thing. Well, I don't know where you think you fit into that, but I think I would very quickly say I'm poor district. I'm a Gentile too. I mean, a Gentile in the poor district, the fact that I could be in the kingdom of heaven, praise God. However, what we find out is he doesn't just desire us somehow near in his kingdom, but in his very near presence, which is shocking enough. But then it says, and he adopts you as his son and his daughter. We are literally royalty. We are grafted into his family. We are given his entire inheritance. Uh, whoa, whoa, yeah, good news. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son and a daughter. And if a son and a daughter, then an heir of God through Christ. We're an heir of God because of our position in Christ. Why in the world do we need to wait 20 years to hear this? 
He sits down as king of kings at the right hand of the Father. Do they know that they sit in the same heavenly place? So Jesus has entered into the throne room of grace as our great high priest, and he sits down. Where does he sit? He's not off on some stool on the side where the jester sits. He literally sits on the throne at the right hand of the Most High God. And what does it say? He makes available to you his own personal inheritance. Ephesians 1, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the mighty working of his power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So where did God set him? He set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand is the, is the hand of authority, dominion, power, and control. So he gives Jesus all dominion, all power, all control, all authority. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. What's under Jesus' feet? All things. And where are you seated? In heavenly places. In the one who's at the right hand of the Father, of whom all things are under his feet, and we're called the body of Christ. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, and when you transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you are literally seated in that place, in Christ Jesus, of which no one can remove you. And you are given authority to do the work of that king here on this earth. He says, Eric, my body is in heaven seated so that you would have my spirit and be able to live the way you could never live without it. It is better for you that I go to be with the Father, says Jesus. We're like, I don't see how that's better because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. His spirit comes and lives in us. Our spirit forever secured in him. Seven, have they reckoned this gospel truth? To reckon is an accounting term, which means to take it by faith. If I told you, you you checked your bank account this morning that you had zero in your bank account, and I said, well, I just wired some money over to you, and I wired $1,000. It's there. I checked. So what would you have to trust? You'd have to trust my word. And so you have a checkbook in front of you, and someone's holding out their hand for the check, and you're like... Well, you would write it if you believed my word, if you had faith in it. You would not write it if you doubted my word. Jesus says, reckon these things to be true. You may feel like your old man is still alive, but God says, reckon him dead. Because he's saying he's dead. You're like, well, well, God, I don't feel it. He says, this has nothing to do with feelings. This has to do with fact. God has promised. He cannot lie. His word has said it. Reckon it. So have they reckoned this gospel truth? Old Eric is dead. Old Eric is buried. New Eric is alive in Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. I reckon it a fact because the word of God says it, and I believe it. And as a result, the life of Eric Ludi is transformed. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Number eight, have they presented and yielded their body? You see, God purchased this body in the transaction on the cross. And as a result, the commission in Scripture is yield, present your body a living sacrifice. Give it unto God. It's a reasonable act of service. I mean, it's just reasonable. You know, one plus one equals two, and so does this. This equals you giving up your body to Jesus. Jesus gave you all. He purchased your body, so give it to him. 
It's just simple mathematics in the kingdom of heaven. Give him what he deserves. Have they presented and yielded their body? Yield, which also means present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present, which is the same word as yield, your body is a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Have they asked the Father for the Holy Spirit? Why were you brought to that very near place? I don't want you to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. If you like Jesus, if you like the Father, you're going to love the Holy Spirit because he's the one that introduced you to them. He's not any different. He doesn't violate the word of God. He only brings you the word of God. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit only reveals Jesus. You do not need to be fearful just because some people have run roughshod over the idea of the Holy Spirit and, and estranged many of the conservatives from him. Let's fight for the person of God once again. You see, it's good that Jesus goes to be with the Father, and where are you? You're in him. You've been brought to the Father. And what does Jesus say? The great thing, when I talk about that lake house being like a picture of Christ, you're in Christ, and there's rooms for all sorts of things. But the chief promise, the chief gift in all of the rooms that, over, that supersedes them all is the life of God has been given to you. The Holy Spirit has been made available to you. And Jesus says, ask the Father. His answer is yes, if you're in Christ. Just ask the Father. So have they asked the Father for the Holy Spirit? Because to start a Christian life without the Holy Spirit doesn't make any sense. Why would you start? Because how is everyone going to do it? They're going to do it in their own strength. I'm not saying that they might not struggle with defaulting to their own strength to do it. However, there's no reason to not start out a new believer with the Holy Spirit. This isn't some bonus package. This is the package. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father... Give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Have you asked? Because you're in Christ. You're right there. Technically, it says Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Jesus. You know what that means? We're in the Father. So you can't get any nearer. You're just like right there in Jesus, in the Father, saying, Father, could I, could I have the Holy Spirit? And what does he say? Hmm, let me think about it. Slap you on the hand and say, you need to wait 20 years for that. He says, absolutely. My answer is yes and Amen. And finally, number 10, let not sin reign. Do they know that sin no longer needs to control them? You see, if you start out your Christian life knowing this, as opposed to coming in sideways into the kingdom of heaven where you're like, yeah, and everyone just continues to struggle. You know, every man is, you know, addicted to sexual things and pornography and every woman, you know, struggles with fear and, you know, gossip. And yeah, it's just the deal. You know, we as Christians are just sinners saved by grace. Yeah, we're sinners saved by grace to be made into saints. Who in the world left us out on this little rung over here saying, oh yeah, poor things, they're Christians. Christians are grafted into the life of Christ. You don't expect a branch to just hang out there brown and dead. What do you expect it to do? Get the living sap from the vine. And when that living sap comes in, what happens? It becomes tender and green and malleable and it moves. No longer is it brittle and hard and dead. And what begins to happen? Little leaves shoot out of it. Signs of life. And what happens next? There's a little grape. I see it. It might not be the greatest grape in the world, but guess what? It's the proof of life. And then what happens over time? Big grapes. Clusters so big that it takes two men to carry them out of the land. It's the fruit of the Spirit of God. The fruit of the land of promise. You see, we are Christians. We are not under the thumb of the devil anymore. We have transferred from death unto life. Or have we? You see, if you're still showing death, well, why don't you come unto Jesus? 
so that you could live. Jesus gives us eternal life. Many of us have heard that. But it's not eternal life someday when we die. It's a life that has no beginning and no ending that he is allowing us to share in. It's his life. And we share in it the moment we believe. And we are made a new creature and we become alive the moment we believe in him. That eternal life is right now. Yes, it lasts forever. But it's available to us right now. Why would we hide this under a bushel? Why wouldn't we share this with the world? This good news. Are we unashamed of the gospel as Paul was? For it is the power of God to those that believe. Let not sin therefore reign. It's a conclusive statement after his argument in Romans. Hey, why would we let sin reign in in our bodies anymore? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You're Christians. You've been set free from that. Did you renounce it? Didn't you already repent of that and move to the new life of Jesus Christ? Now you're controlled by the Spirit. You have the power of the Spirit to live this life. You don't have to lean on your own pocket strength, your own natural ability to somehow be godly. You can't be godly, but he can. Have you given your life to him? The pangs, the push, and the practice. So the gospel pangs, which is what we just walked through, thoroughly bringing the ready soul through into life. And then the press to baptize. You know, if someone has walked through that, I would highly encourage you to say to them, why don't you be baptized? Why don't you make a public confession of this statement? Because baptism in water is a statement of being in Christ. In his death, identified in his death, leaving the old man behind and rising to a newness of life in Christ Jesus. So it's a picture of being in Christ and then being ignited by Christ in you. And now the life you live as you walk out of that tomb is a new life from this day forward. Well, Why wouldn't you encourage that? You're not saved by that water. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. However, to firm and to grow up this life, start sharing. Start speaking it. Allow that your life to be a flow-through channel for this confession. And then immediate discipleship. This is one thing that I would say as a church, our strength is discipleship, but I don't know if we're ready for 400 people to just be converted tomorrow and then we're going to be able to disciple them. In other words, I can't do it all. You guys are going to be trained to do it. In other words, all of us become disciples. All of us become gospel sharers. Some of us are going to specialize in certain areas. You don't need to be Eric Ludy, but you need to be you. And so all of us are going to be specialists, but we all are equipped to speak it, to live it, to pray it. We all do all things, but some of us are going to be specialized in certain areas. Some of you will be leading evangelists. So just go with them. They'll teach you. I mean, if we had Ray Comfort here, wouldn't you just want to just follow him around a few days in Fort Collins just sort of see what it's like? You see, but Ray Comfort still needs to know how to pray, and he still needs to know how to disciple. It doesn't mean that it's just, he's a one-shot wonder, you know, over here with one area. We're to be well-rounded Christians. The prod towards prayer and confession. When you have a new believer in your life that you're discipling, what you're going to want them to do is start confessing. Start going out and sharing what they have going on inside of them because this is what's going to grow it up in them as well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We've been given a commission. Go. Go therefore. Go to the local McDonald's and share. Go back home to your family and love them. Love them with the love of Jesus and be a witness of what he has done in your life. Go to North Korea. There's 
easier ones than others in that go. But the commission is the same for all of us. No matter what age we are, go. You know, it might be go into the playroom and share the love of Jesus with your sister. And it could be a lot more complicated than that. It could cost us our life to go and share the gospel. In fact, it likely will. However, the commission is the same for all of us. Let's be ready to go. But when we go, let's allow the Spirit of God to begin to train us in this bucket. What we have, you have a lot of stuff in there. I don't want you to be intimidated by it. I want you to celebrate the fact that God is acquainting you with these different tools, these different elements of truth that work strength in the life of a believer. You have what you need just by having the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's enough. However, in the Word of God is a lot of great stuff, and I want you to begin to handle it well. The more you do it, the better you'll get. It's just like anything in life. If you don't do it, you'll stink at it. If you do do it, you'll usually stink at first. And yet you start to recognize what works and what doesn't. Remember uh, Ray Comfort's famous uh, uh, encouragement, go find a sinner and practice on them? Well, you know, some of us hesitate to give that as uh, as a rule of thumb, but there's truth in it. In other words, don't practice with some brash gospel tearing, like, repent! Practice by loving, washing feet, giving of your life, giving of your resources to meet the needs of those around you with the answer always being Jesus. The hope that lies within you is Jesus. That you can know. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.